Well, today, as I told you earlier this morning, I really didn't say anything about this Thursday night, but uh, we're going to look at two verses that, in my opinion, when it comes to the Bible and, and getting a good, solid understanding of, of the Word of God, um, are game changers, as far as I'm concerned, in the way that we look at things. You know, two great verses on the understanding and the laying out of history. And, um, I mean, um, it's an incredible two verses. Uh, it helps us understand the purpose of it all, the purpose of life, the purpose of Christianity, uh, the complete plan of God, how it unfolds itself. You know, years and years ago, I, I came across a great verse that opened up a great concept found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. And it's certainly no new verse to, um, to us because it simply says that God's ways are not our ways that his thoughts are not our thoughts. And, uh, you know, we, we getting God's perspective and getting God's understanding. I, I personally think the greatest goal for the child of God, after we get saved, the greatest goal that you and I have is to quit looking at things from our own standpoint, the way we look at life, and to start seeing everything from God's standpoint. I've told you that over and over and over again, and in my heart there's no truer goal that you and I should have. And these two verses that I'm going to look at are absolutely vital to any of you who want to get all that God has for you and want to take your Christian life to the next level and really get established in some things. Developing a depth, a depth in the Bible. You know, the Bible talks about in human life we have three dimensions. Now, everything in our world physically is a three-dimensional world. And uh, yet, when you become a Christian, the Bible talks about Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, that there's a fourth dimension. And that fourth dimension is a spiritual dimension. It's the depth that we have with God in His Word that allows us to see and understand in a much, much, much greater depth, in a much greater way, all that God is trying to do. And it's verses like today that we're going to talk about that, that in my mind was a game changer for me. And I think it would be for anybody when you get to that point. And as you know, if you've been around here any length of time, uh, we believe that context with the Bible is everything. You can find anybody taking anything out of the Bible to pretty much prove whatever they want to prove. And it happens all the time. Every cult, every, everybody who gets whacked out on the Bible and, and, and leads people astray, everybody who believes something about the Bible that isn't true, fundamentally will go back to one aspect. And that is, whatever verse they took, whatever passage they took, they took it and lifted it out of the context. And therefore, when you do that, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. If I wanted to... Uh, put a case for smoking marijuana today, I would just simply take out a context that Jesus got high on a mountain. You can do whatever you wanted to do. If I wanted to prove that, that uh, every Christian had to have a motorcycle and ride it through life, I would get over there and where the Bible says that David's triumph was heard throughout the land. You can go wherever you want to go. You can make it say whatever you want to make it say, but you can't change it when you find it in the context. And I, I teach you that the words of the Bible are, are, have their own context. 
Uh, verses in the Bible will have their own context. Chapters in the Bible have to stay within a context. The books of the Bible themselves has to be in a context. This is why you get so many heretical teachings and bad teachings because everybody forsakes or doesn't spend the time to get the context. And for me, as a Christian, wanting the truth of the Bible, believing the Bible is God's Word, I believe that if God was God enough to write it, then He wrote within it the context that He wanted us to follow. And you're going to find today that the Bible itself will have a, a, con, a, a context uh, as it tells the story of God and His plan for man down through history. And, and I want to tell you that history can be a very hard, complicated subject. There's no question about that. You know what? When you talk about American history, uh, and you'll get that in school, you know, we talk about American histories. We talk about the, the pilgrims coming over, you know, at Plymouth Rock in 1620, and then the formulation from 1700, and, and in, what, 300 years, here we are today. When you talk about European history, you're talking about, uh, you know, the formulation of the, of the nations that make up Europe. Most Americans are very short on history, uh, and they don't understand world history. When we talk in America, we'll say, man, we went down to Jamesport, or we went over to this town. We saw a house that is 150 years old. We think that's old. You go to Europe, and you can go to churches that are 900 years old. You see, there's a difference between the two. And history is an incredible thing. English history, my goodness. English history, from the early Roman conquest right up to the Norman and the Saxons and everything that took place. And once she became uh, a nation, about 400 A.D., then the kings and queens of England. It's incredibly complicated. We talk about ancient history, you know, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Persians. And, you know... History itself breaks down into two sections. You have history that what we call B.C., which is before Christ. That would be ancient history. And then we have history after Christ, which is A.D. Most people think means after death. It doesn't. It's Latin for in the year of our Lord. Now, we have changed that now, you know, getting away from the Bible. They don't use A.D. And, or B.C. and A.D. anymore. They don't use it that way. Now we call it B.C.E., which means before common era, whatever that is. And then we use for A.D. B.P., which means before 1950. Now, i got to be honest with you. I appreciate the whole world changing everything to time around my birth, because I was born in 1950. <laughs> but I would just as soon have left it with the coming of Christ. And however you want to separate it down, or however you want to look at it, however you want to get away from it, History revolves in two aspects. Before Christ, which is ancient history, and then after Christ, which is we would call our history or our modern history. And, uh, you know, you could spend the rest of your life studying history and the Bible and, and never figure it all out, really. And the key to history is like the key to the Bible. It's finding that common thread that weaves and brings all history into an understandable context. And history, much like the Bible, is portrayed uh, to you as some hard, non-understandable concept that you'll never be able to get, never be able to fully understand. And they tell you that about the Bible, and they tell you that about history. And that's simply not true. 
It's the simple difference. It's the simple difference between God's way of seeing history and man's way of seeing history. When you look at history as man's way, it becomes the most complicated thing you ever saw in your life. Man will complicate it beyond belief. But man does that with everything. You take salvation. Is there anything more simple in all the world than God's simple plan of salvation? What does man do with it when man gets it? He makes it into some kind of absolutely complicated mess that nobody can figure out. And the rule number one, stay with the Word of God. Rule number one, God takes the complicated things and breaks them down into the simple form where man will take the simple things and make them so complicated nobody can understand it. That's just the rule that you'll follow. I saw this value in history uh, more, more than 40 years ago in my life. And I saw that the Bible was the greatest history book that was ever written because it's God's perspective totally different from anything I had ever been taught, anything that I ever had believed. And the Bible is the greatest history book, but it differs from all the other history books in one way. And I want you to see this as we move into these verses. All the writers of history that you get in high school, junior high, college, wherever you go, all the writers of history write from a perspective of telling you what man is doing down through history. The Bible takes a complete opposite turn, and the Bible is a history book that doesn't tell you what man is doing down through history, but it tells you what God is doing down through history. There's the key. There is the key. And when I found that out, when I found out these two verses and I understood them and the context of history, it just overwhelmed me. Now, these two verses today are found in Proverbs chapter 22 and Proverbs chapter 23. Now, I'm going to, we are, we are in our study on Proverbs at Proverbs 22 verse 28. The other verse that goes with this is in 23.10. So if you allow me to, I'm going to jump ahead this week and next week. I'm going to talk about Proverbs 22.28 today, which is where we're at. Then I'm going to jump ahead and pull that verse in 23.10 back to put them together. And then we'll, we'll, we'll move back into our, our normal sync of things. But I want to talk to you today about these two verses. Proverbs 22.28 says this, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Proverbs 23.10, next week, will remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. And I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of two landmarks. Before we do that, let's go to pray. George Christensen, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Joe, please, for me. When I was a kid, about nine or ten years old, I was in uh, grammar school, and uh, they introduced something to help us uh, motivate our reading skills, and it was called Reading Lab. 
And I read in there, I had, a, every, had an hour and a half every day in there, and I read all kinds of stuff to learn everything that I could. I was an active, avid reader even back then. I loved history. I loved science. And, uh, you know, uh, I was really loved English, English comprehension. Uh, to this day, God, I look back and God was cultivating in my young life, even back then, the tools that I would need to be able to get into uh, the Bible. But it was about 1962. I came across a story that intrigued me so much that I've never forgotten it. And it's still... It still is everything I could ever learn about. I, whenever I see it, I read it, I study it. I'll go back over it again uh, many, many, many times. And uh, you can Google it on, in your computer, and you get everything that you ever want on it. But it was the story about the Lady Be Good. Now, the Lady Be Good was a heavy bomber, B-24, that became one of the greatest mysteries of World War II, and probably one of the greatest mysteries of all aviation history. It was 1943, and the squadron of B-24s took off from Benghazi to raid the subprens at Naples, Italy. And uh, it, the Lady Be Good was piloted by First Lieutenant William Hatton, and the co-pilot was Robert Turner. And bad weather got the plane separated, and the target got socked out, and they couldn't make the bombing run. And uh, some of the planes got scattered and, and got separated, and they aborted the mission, and they all came back. The Lady Be Good never returned. She never made it back to base, and no one ever heard from her or her crew ever again. The Lady Be Good was lost uh, to the... To the, uh, to the ravages of war, everyone thought. A massive sea and rescue uh, search was put out in the Mediterranean to try to find her. Never found a trace of her. She was, she was marked as, as, as lost at sea and the crew missing in action. And the Air Force, Air Corps during that time, wasn't the Air Force yet, the Air Corps during that time, uh, they uh, had so many other cases of planes missing, they just attributed to the missing lady be good as some kind of accident that happened and sank in the Mediterranean, the crew was lost, and case was closed. In May of 1958, 15 years later, an oil expedition crew in the Libyan desert, some 600 miles from where the bombing raid and the, was to take place, came across a perfectly preserved B-24 in the desert. It wasn't your typical crash site. This plane was just laying on the desert floor. It was like a ghost ship. All, everything was in place. The coffee and the thermos were still drinkable. The food was still edible. Fifteen years later, the 50 caliber machine gun still fired, and when they hooked batteries up to the radio, the radio still worked. It was just like this plane just landed in the middle of the desert, and the plane was the Lady Be Good. There were nine crew members on that plane, and there was no trace of them. Unbelievable story. The Air Force, by this time, did a search of the area, found nothing, case closed. Two years later, in 1960, in that same Libyan desert, another oil expedition crew was surveying for oil 
and came across on a little plateau in the middle of the desert, a little camp with five bodies around it. And these five bodies were five of the nine crew members of the Lady Be Good. At the camp, they found a lot of personal items. And one of the personal items that they found was a diary that was kept by co-pilot Robert Toner, who had kept a diary of what happened and all that went through and transpired in their life. The Air Force again expanded the search area for the other missing crewmen and found nothing. One year later, another oil expert crew was excavating out there and found a body 21 miles farther from the little camp where they found the five bodies. And it was the body of assistant flight engineer Guy Shelby from The Lady Be Good. Five years later, Another oil expedition crew found the body of Harold Ripslinger, who was the flight engineer, 26 miles past where they found the last body. The ninth body of Vernon Moore has never been found. They come to find out when they put all the material together that these men in the middle of the Libyan desert, where it's 112 during the day and, and 20 degrees uh, at night, had trekked over 132 miles under the most terrible conditions that you ever could be, with no water and basically no food. Uh, as a young boy, uh, and to this day, I have been captivated by this story. And later in life, when I got into the Bible, it hit me as one of the most profound principles that, for my own personal life, uh, of where I'm at and where I want to go. And, you know, there's all kinds of books written on it. Uh, there's a book out by the, the Ladies' Men by Marco Martinez. Uh, there's a book called The Lady Be Good by Dennis McClinn. Uh, there's a magazine out that's called After the Battle where they compare the battlefields today of where they were. They did a great story on it. 1960, Life Magazine did an incredible story on it when it was all just coming uh, and unearthing. There's been at least three or four movies that have been made on that plot. And, you know, it, it's an incredible thing. And, and, and here's what happened. And the story is an absolutely heartbreaking story. In the diary, they found how that they, they, they thought they were over water. When in reality, in the middle of the night, they couldn't tell they were over the desert. They have gotten off course. And they come to the place when they bailed out of the plane because they were almost out of fuel. That they were expecting a water landing and how surprised they were when they hit the hard ground of the desert. The plane glided on autopilot for another 15 or 20 miles and then just bellied into the, to the desert. The diary tells the story how that they, 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 they linked up there on the desert. When the morning came, they, they were confused at what had happened. And so they began to, uh, to, begin to try to get to... If they had went just 15 or 16 miles in the one direction, they would have found the plane and they would have been rescued. They had everything they need, but they went the other direction. And the diary tells it how that the cold nights and the, uh, in, the, in the bitterly hot days, no water, no food, how that they went on for day after day after day. Finally, they could go no farther in a little camp that they put there where they found the first five bodies. And he talks about how that they're having regular prayer meetings every day for them to be rescued. They're too weak to go on. Three of the men who have enough strength go on. 
one makes it 26 miles and he dies. The other one goes on another 21 miles and he dies. And the other body has never been found in the dunes someplace in that great desert. When it was all put together, what had happened is this. Their navigator, Lieutenant D.B. Hayes. By the way, he was from Lee Summit, Missouri. The navigator, D.B. Hayes, missed a landmark. And when he missed a landmark, he set the wrong course in the wrong direction. And when they all thought that they were flying over back to their base, in reality, they were flying 600 miles the other way, all based on one missed landmark. And they all perished and they all died. And and I learned some great lessons from that. Proverbs 22 and 23 talks about the, uh, the principles in the Bible and the landmarks and the lessons from history. You know, and in the Bible, and what I want to talk about today in relationship to this story, what God told me, is God has given us some landmarks. And when you and I miss those landmarks in our life, when you and I go through life with a missed landmark, we go on the wrong course in life, just like the crew of the Lady Be Good did. Proverbs 23.10, we'll talk about it next week, says that, that you enter into the fields of the fatherless. What does that mean? That means meanishly history that has no purpose. It means that most of God's people have no roots of understanding where they've come from. Most churches, most pastors are standing in their pulpit speaking today like they've got something to say. But in reality, they have no roots. They have no heritage. They do not understand because much like the crew of the Lady Be Good, we missed the landmarks. And we are going down on a course in life that we think is going to take us one place, just like that crew did. But that crew wound up starving to death and dying of thirst in a harsh desert. And God's people today, because they're on the wrong course, are dying of thirst, starving to death with the Word of God. And we're succumbing, marriages, families, individuals are succumbing to the harsh realities of this old world just like they did in the Libyan desert. Landmarks. Landmarks. Find them. Stay with them. Use them to set the course of history from God's perspective and then find your place in it. Miss them and you'll die in the desert with no roots, no heritage, no landmarks to guide you. I always say... If you're a Christian and you don't know where you come from, you probably certainly don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you've come from and you have no idea where you're going, please don't tell me today you know where you're at. Most people today with a Bible are like most people who have a car. You know how to start it. You know how to drive it. You have one of the most sophisticated computer systems with the radio and everything, and you can figure all that out. You can talk your phone through it. You can get your favorite stations, get the temperature. You can got a GPS in it. You can do all of those things. You're good with that, but if you had to replace a head gasket, if you had to take the pistons out and put it in, 
new ones, which I've done many times. If you had to rebuild the transmission or rebuild the engine or you'd have to replace the rear end, you'd never be able to do it. In other words, you know how to tinker with the little things of your car, but you don't understand the depth of what really, how to fix the car. And most God's people are the same way with the Bible. We tinker with the Bible. We know a few little neat little things we've learned about it, but when it comes to changing a head gasket, when it comes to getting the depth of the Bible, understanding where God is at in history, in life, and where you're at and what you're doing, we just tinker with it. The book of Ephesians talks about the depth of the Bible. How deep... How deep with the Word of God are you willing to go? Most people that have cars, they don't want to worry about putting a new camshaft in. They don't want to worry about changing out the carburetor. They don't want to worry about, do I know what I'm talking about or what? I'm with it, aren't I? They don't want that. When you've got those kind of issues with your car, you'll take it to someone who's a bona fide mechanic. And that's the same way with the Word of God with so many God's people. You don't want to be bothered right now with the deep things of the Bible. When you have a problem, you'll bring it to the mechanic. When in reality, you should know everything about that book. <clears throat> the Bible is as easy to learn as history is. Caleb Miller came to me a couple, about three or four weeks ago, and he said, you know, and he does a lot of work on the website, and he said, you know, we don't, you notice we don't have a, state, a statement of faith on the, on the website of what we believe? Well, honestly, I never really thought about it. I never intended the website to go where it's going and do what it's doing. I just put it out there so you guys would have a, a chance to get some stuff that if you wanted to study it. I never dreamed God would take it around the world like he's done it. And so I told Caleb, you know, I said, hey, go ahead and put one together. Let's take a look at it. Well, he brought it back last, not this last Thursday, the Thursday before. And uh, I, I looked at it this week and I thought to myself, I don't believe this. This is, this is not a statement of faith. This is a doctrinal. He could get his doctor's degree on this thesis. If you ever wanted to know who we are, why we believe what we believe, and why we'll not take Baptist off our name, you're going to see it on the website pretty soon. It was incredible. And I thought to myself, now I know he's young, and he's like all you young guys. You're much more smarter than us older folks. You really are. You're quicker. You're faster. And, uh, 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 but I can outdraw you, so you don't want to go there. <laughs> but the bottom line is this. I saw him, Drake, you guys, all you young guys, all you young girls who have been in this church, what, three or four years maybe? There's a depth to you that's unbelievable. When I read that, I thought to myself, I couldn't do it this good. I, this is incredible. And it shows me that there are still men and women out there who want the depth of the Bible. You don't want to just tinker with it. You don't want to just know some things about the Bible. You want to know the Bible. And it's an encouragement to see, to me, to see how this thing all works. And I'm telling you, throughout history, 
That Bible says, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And there's two things in that verse that I want to look at for just a moment. The first thing it says, remove not the ancient landmark. It's singular. There's only one landmark in ancient history that you've got to follow. Only one. That makes history pretty easy. The second thing is, don't remove it. Now, throughout history in the Old Testament, God's plan for planet Earth... God's plan for planet Earth was was one landmark, the nation of Israel. God, it's it's likened to God's wife in the Old Testament. See the book of Hosea. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, Isaiah chapter uh, 54. God looks at that nation and in his relationship with him, he says, she's my wife. Now, we'll talk next week in the New Testament you're going to find that the landmark is the church, and God calls that church the bride of His Son. So God has a relationship with His people. Christ has a relationship with His bride, the church. We'll talk about it next week. And all through history, the focus of God in the Old Testament is on that people group, and the focus of God in the New Testament is on His bride, the church. In ancient history, before Christ shows up, God's perspective on earth and mankind and His plan only came through one place, only one nation, only one people, only one city. I'm going to tell you before I go any farther, this is 100% rejected by everybody today. If you go to high school, you go to college, you go wherever you want to go, you will find an argument against this with almost everybody that exists. But that's okay. In Noah's day, the earth was about six billion people, and everybody argued with one man about rain. But it rained. Now, when you see that God's people, the Jew, Jerusalem, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, when you see that all history is broken down into six sections about that nation, history suddenly becomes completely understandable. You're now you see that God's perspective is the simplest perspective. We don't have to worry about, and I'm going to show you, we don't have to worry about all the other nations out there. And what They may be interesting, it may be fun, it may be exciting, but when it comes down to what God is doing, it's all about one people. And those six aspects are the formulation of Israel, the calling out of Israel, the establishment of Israel, the demise of Israel, the captivity of Israel, and the restoration of Israel. And I want to walk you through those very quickly here. Let's talk about the formulation. In your Bible, this would be the book of Genesis in the first 50 chapters. In time, on earth, it would be 4004 B.C. up to about 1689 B.C. And now we begin to see God's plan. We begin to see in its most basic form. We begin to see from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10, the three people groups begin to form. From Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the, the sons of Noah. We see in Genesis chapter 11 through Genesis chapter 15, the calling out of Abraham. And Abraham becomes the key. And God calling him out of Ur of Chaldees to be a great nation. You'll find that in Genesis 15 verses 5 through 21. You'll find that the promise is given to Abraham in Genesis 18, 18 and Genesis 12, 3 that all families and all nations, all families and all nations are going to have to get their blessing from the nation of Israel. God's landmark. 
up to Genesis chapter 12, God had made covenants with, with, with all the different people. Now when Abraham shows up, God changes the whole dimensions of the covenant. Now it's an unconditional covenant that carries all the way through to today and all the way through to God's restoring the nation of Israel. We see that begin to unfold the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Abraham. From Abraham comes Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob. From Jacob he has 12 boys. Those 12 boys become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The landmark. Now, during this time in history, from secular history, if we would go get a history book around 1996 B.C., Egypt now is a world power. She's passing from the early dynasty into the midline dynasty. Sodom and Gomorrah now is at its, be- be- oh, at its worst. And you'll find in Genesis chapter 14 all the nations and the kings that are listed during that time. But all God is writing about and all God is focused on all down through this period in ancient history is his landmark. The beginning of the greatest nation the world will ever see, the nation of Israel. And that nation will bring salvation not only to the Old Testament, but the Bible says in John chapter uh, 4, verse 22, that salvation is of the Jews, because your salvation and mine came from a Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the tribe of Judah. And wow, what a, great, what a great picture here. Genesis chapter 46, verse 26. When they're all getting ready from from Jacob to go down into Egypt uh, for God to do what he's going to do in the next section. The Bible says in Genesis 46, 26 that when you get all of the people together and all the families together that are the ones that are really uh, the main ones. The Bible says 66 people go down to Egypt. And that's where it ends. Wow, what a great What a great spiritual prophecy that is. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. You know what you got in that verse? You got 66 people representing the 66 books of the Bible because salvation is of the nation of Israel and the Jews going down into Egypt, the type of the world. God was going to send the world, the Word of God, His 66 books through the nation of Israel. Incredible. Well... The second section will be the calling out. This will be in the Bible, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If we're looking at secular history or keeping account on history, it'll be 1680 B.C. to around 1451 B.C. And now this section, we see uh, two great concepts of God uh, and His nation. We see God uh, for 430 years builds them, and then when He takes them out, For 40 years, he proves them. And that sets up a great concept for every one of us because there has to be a a building in your life as a Christian. When you get saved, you enter into a building program that you begin to build your life the way God wants it to be. There has to be a building program in your life, but there also, during that same time, has to be a proving session in your life. You proving yourself. Prove all things. The other Thursday night, somebody asked a question about the seven things a Christian is to prove. And we saw that one of them is to prove your own self, to prove your ministry, prove who you are as God puts in your life everything that you need. We see then in Exodus chapter 1 through 10, their terrible bondage by Egypt. We see in Exodus chapter 12, God bringing them out their exodus. We see the great Red Sea crossing as God splits the Red Sea. 
And for the next four books then, we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God calls them out and proves them for 40 years. And God gives them during that time everything that they need to be His nation. This is what it's called. God calling them out and God equipping them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. He gives them the sacrifices. He gives them the feasts. He gives them the statutes and the ordinances. He gives them everything that they need to be His nation. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the seven pieces of furniture. He gives them the priesthood. And then He sends them on a journey to the promised land. During this time in history, we would go to high school, grammar school, college, we'd find that Egypt is at its greatest point. But other nations are on the way. We saw in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 10 11, the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. As the world gets larger, as the world gets bigger, so will the nations. And Egypt will soon be part of history. She'll be gone. But God could care less about Egypt. God could care less about all the other Gentile nations out there. God's only, only thing that's important to God is that all of these nations, God will use them to make His nation and His people what they need to be. And the quicker you see that, the better off you're going to be when it comes to understanding how history works. Our landmark in ancient history is the nation of Israel. Well, the third section will be the establishment. This will be Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, and First Chronicles. If you want to put a time frame to this in history, it'd be 1451 B.C. down to 1000 B.C. Now here we see uh, them coming back into the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, the promised land. We see in Joshua where they go up against and fight three major campaigns against these nations that the devil has put there to keep them out. Uh, we look at the book of Judges, uh, in the book of Judges, the Philistines, the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, all nations that were in the land that God gave them. And they destroy them. And today, they're nowhere to be found. You cannot find the Canaanites. You cannot find the Philistines. You cannot find the Midianites. You cannot find the Moabites. You can't find any of them. But the landmark stands, the nation of Israel. In First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, we see the first three kings. Saul, who's not a very good king. Saul was not God's choice. It was the people's choice. But then we find David, a man after God's own heart. Then we find Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. And after Saul, David will establish the kingdom. He makes Jerusalem the capital. We're moving through time here, Second Samuel chapter 5. He makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and 40 years now he takes to wipe out the last enemies of the nation of Israel. When he's gone, Solomon comes on the scene. And Solomon, uh, now his kingdom is established. And for 40 years, Solomon now reigns in a land where there are no wars. There's all peace, and it's all safety, and it's all prosperity. In fact, when you study those two kingdoms for 40 years each, David is a type of Christ in the second coming. He wipes out all the enemies, and then Solomon's a type of Christ in the millennium when everything's at peace. And you'll find that during this time, the whole world, the whole world, the whole world, find it in 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 10, the time element is 1000 B.C. The whole world knows that there is a God in Jerusalem and He's the God of the world. The Queen of Sheba is coming up to see it from Africa. 
everybody is coming to pay homage and to see the great God of the nation of Israel. Never get that in school. I would guarantee you that you go to high school or college and they get into ancient history, they'll spend hours and hours and hours talking about the Gentile nations from man's perspective. They won't spend 30 seconds on the greatest nation that ever lived, God's perspective, the nation of Israel. That's okay. It's where you got me. The fourth one, the demise. The demise. And you know, it's one of those things where I, 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 I devoured everything I could get in history, probably hundreds of books. I remember reading the works, works by Will Durant. Will Durant was a historian. He wrote 11 volumes on the history of civilization. And uh, he died in 1996. And uh, it was an incredible work by the world standards. But it was totally a wasted time of, of paper and ink. Because he, he left the reader more confused after reading his works than he ever did. He put no context to it. I remember reading the, reading the eight volumes of Philip Schaff on the history of the Christian church. It's the standard today in every Bible college in the country. It's the standard today in most pastors and most churches. And when you were finished, you couldn't find any context of God, uh, the Bible, or history anywhere. Philip Schaff writes church history like he thinks the devil died someplace in church history. Incredible. And I began to read history. I began to see how God began to bring the greatest nation uh, to, to its point. And then I began to see the demise and see why. With Solomon, we see the beginning of the fall of the greatest nation that the world has ever seen. Time frame here will be 1000 B.C. to 606 B.C., 1st, 2nd Kings, and the book of 2nd Chronicles. And all the lessons, all the lessons that we can learn from this, all the lessons that we can learn about what happens when the, the nation of Israel, uh, under, uh, under his Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he splits the kingdom north and south and makes two kingdoms. He divides it. All the great principle for you and for me, how that the devil will divide you and then conquer you. It was the beginning of Israel's end. Once the devil divided that nation, that nation could not stand. Because how can two walk together except they be agreed? I want to tell you something. If you ever fall as a Christian and get out of going to church and going to the Bible, loving God and loving God's people, ministry and doing all the things, you can, we can chalk it up and put a list on the blackboard of a thousand sins that, that you may have committed or brought you to that point. But in reality, come down to one thing. You got divided. You got divided from the Bible. Then you got divided from your church. Then you got divided from your Christian friend, and the rest takes care of itself. Divide and all the lessons that we could learn. First and second Kings and second Chronicles are a list of the kings of Israel and Judah after they separate. Nineteen kings for Judah, nineteen kings for the northern tribes of Israel. And we see the people beginning to forsake his word, forsake him. And they begin to spin off into the apostasy of, of the time, getting into Baal worship and all other things. We see the rise now of the two greatest Gentile kingdoms at this particular time, uh, Assyria and Babylon. God will use these two nations to chastise his people. And it's a great thing in history. God will bring up these Gentile nations. God will use them to either help his people or chastise his people or judge his people. And then God destroys those nations. Anybody here a Babylonian this morning? 
Anybody here in Assyrian this morning? Anybody here say, well, my great uncle was a Babylonian. My great aunt was an Assyrian. They're gone. But the landmark still stands. Where are they today? I mean, you go to the Middle East. Where are they? Where are the Babylonians? The greatest empire of their time. It was unbelievable. Where is it? Buried under the sand. Where's the Assyrian Empire? Where, where is the greatest Assyrian Empire that, that literally conquered? No, buried under the sand. And the very nation that they wanted to wipe out and destroy is still standing. Why? It's a landmark. Well, then we have the captivity. In your Bible, this will be Daniel, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, Esther, and the Old Testament prophets, major and minor. In time frame, in history, it'll be 606 B.C., 721 B.C., up to the first coming of Christ around 4 B.C. I, I personally think this is one of the most amazing times in history, personally. There's so many things I'd like to tell you about this one, but don't have time in the time that we're trying to do what we're trying to do. But uh, this, is, to me, is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in history. And it all comes back, and you get it from God's perspective, seeing history the way He sees it. During this time, we have what we call the 400 silent years. That's the close of, of the nation of Israel up to the first coming of Christ. And God, during this time, speaks to nobody. There's no Bible books written during this time. There's no prophets of God. There's no open vision. God's not speaking to anybody. Anything that God reveals to anybody, He's only revealing it through what is already written in the Old Testament up to that period of time. Daniel chapter 2 picks it up here and tells us about the rise of the Gentile nations. Babylon was in power when Daniel goes into captivity. And then Persia rises up and defeats Babylon. And then Greece rises up under Alexander the Great who defeats Persia. And then Rome rises up around 100 B.C. and takes the world stage from Alexandria. And, you know, it's, a, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible thing, but God only records that to show us how all these nations... He doesn't go into the detail. He, he doesn't speak two words about any of it. He doesn't talk about Xerxes' defeat to Alexander. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't talk about the great Athens, the Greece. He doesn't talk about, to me, one of the greatest pieces in history is the 300 Spartans at Thoophily who, who fought off the Persian. To me, that's an great encouragement. I, I got a little patch here that I, I saw a while back, and I, I, I couldn't live without this. And it's got Velcro on the back. I'm going to get a bunch more of them here in a couple of weeks. And uh, it's got a picture of a Spartan helmet on it with two cross swords. And underneath it, I don't know how to read Greek, but underneath it, it's got the Greek phrase. And it's built around the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Phenophily. And you know how it happened. Uh, Persia was, was going to defeat Greece, and Persia wanted to take all of Greece. And uh, in Greece there was Sparta, which was the, the elite Spartans. And uh, they had got word that the, uh, that the uh, Persian fleet had landed on the coast and was going to make their way up and defeat. But they had to come through the mountains. And the only way through the mountains was one little mountain pass. And 300 Spartans up against 300,000 Persians defended that little pass for seven days. And 300 Spartans held off 300,000 Persians to buy enough time for their army to get regathered down there. And every one of those 300 Spartans died. 
the Persian general saw that he was between a rock and a hard place, that there was no place to get through that pass. So he offered them a deal, and he said, if you lay down your swords, we'll allow you to live and go home to your families. The Spartan commander wrote back to him and said, you want our swords? Come and take them. Now that motivates me. Now, I know those guys are probably all in hell, and they probably none of them were a Christian there. I doubt seriously. But I like guys who's got enough gut that if you want to take their swords, they'll tell you to come and take it. And in the world that we live in today, I like this patch. Because there's a lot of people who want to take your sword from you. There's a lot of people who want to tell you the Bible you have isn't the real Word of God. There's a lot of people out there, churches, pastors, Bible colleges, would like us to lay down our sword. I like this path because the Greek phrase underneath the two swords is, come and take them. See, I get something from that. You obviously didn't, but I did. (laughs) But God didn't write about that. What a great story that would have made in the Bible. We got Gideon's 300, why not... Barton's 300. He never wrote a word about that. He never never wrote anything about Spain. He never wrote anything about the defeat of Persia fleet at at, at Salam. He never wrote anything in ancient history. It's filled with Gentile nations growing and conquering and doing some great things. God never mentions a word about it. You know why? His focus in history is the landmark. His attention is fixed on one people, one nation. Then the sixth one is the restoration of the nation of Israel. All history focused on this landmark will break down into six basic sections all around what God's doing. Not what man's doing. The restoration of the nation of Israel. And this will bring us up to the Beginning of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. You know the story. Matthew chapter 1 through Matthew chapter 28. Walk you through chapter by chapter of their rejection. And then his crucifixion. But all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies are the fulfillment of the regathering of the nation of Israel. He's going to restore them and he's going to regather them. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 11 tells us, it's a key verse in the Bible, it says that God is going to regather His people the second time. The first time was under Ezra and Nehemiah. The second time will be in your time and my time. Because we are living right now today in the regathering of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 37 Ezekiel uh, chapter 11, verse 18, chapter 20, chapter 22, Amos chapter 9, 11, Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 31, all are prophecies pointing that there's going to come a time in our time when God is going to take a nation that went into captivity and for 2,000, almost 2,500 years were, were held captive by every other nation. God is not finished. He says they're the landmark. And I'll show you next week how we kick in as the landmark in the New Testament, but God's not finished with His people. I'll tell you how it happened. For almost 25, 2300 years, they were without a nation. They were without a capital. They were without anything. They were scattered throughout all of the earth through the disposition back there in 606 B.C. 
And God was ready to move and God was ready to get some things done and bring back his people. So around 1880, you found what was called the Zionist movement. People actually started to feel sorry for the Jews because they had no homeland. Now you begin to see how God works down through history. It's one thing to try to figure it out in Assyria time or Babylon time. Now I'm going to show you how he does it in our time, even though you weren't quite born yet. It's in our time. Before World War I, Europe, where the Jews were all through Europe, was held by dynasties, monarchies. You had the Russian monarch, you had the Austro-Hungarian monarch, you had the, you had the uh, German monarch, you had the Ottoman Turks, who were, the, were the, uh, all through the Middle East. And they, they held Europe in a great stranglehold. And there was nowhere to go in Europe. Europe was absolutely at a standstill because these monarchs held everything in it, and underneath them was the nation of Israel. That all changed with World War I. World War I did anything. World War I broke the monarchies of all the monarchs in Europe. Russia had its own revolution. She was out fairly early. Hungary, who was, was part responsible for uh, World War I with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, they were gone. The Ottoman Turks chose the wrong side. They went with Germany. They were gone. Germany was defeated. There's only one monarch left at the end of World War I. They're all gone. God just come down and swooped them all out and left one monarchy left, England. And on top of that, the Jews now have had no homeland. They've had nothing, nothing at all. There have been vagrants and vagabonds. No, in 1880 to 1918, it just all changed. All the monarchs of Europe are gone. England is alone. And England, on November 9th, 1917, Lord Allaby goes into Jerusalem. The Turks, the Ottoman Turks have Jerusalem. He kicks them out. Now England has complete control of Jerusalem. If that wasn't enough, on November 2nd, 1917, a guy by the name of Lord Belfar in British Parliament during the World War I, a Jew by the name of Wiesman had come up with a concoction to make a smokeless gunpowder that helped the British were in World War I. It set them so far ahead of everything. At the end of World War I, Lord Belfar, who was a born-again saved Christian, stood up in British Parliament, now that they have Jerusalem, and they said, that land belongs to God's people. And he put forth what has been known today as the Belfar Declaration that says England, now in possession of the Holy Land, should give it to the Jew. God wasn't finished with his people. Now, what I'm about to say is going to drive, if you're a Gentile here this morning, this is going to drive you nuts. You say, well, what are you? I'm from Venus. I am from outer space. You ever see the invasion of the body snatchers? There's a 1955 version and there's a newer version. I think they even come out with a, a later version. And what happened is that you just walked through life and you went to sleep one night. Somebody put these big seed pods in your garage and it metamorphosed into you and then you were gone and now you were taken over by whatever. Metamorphosis is not the word I was looking for. 
We're going to put all this in a book. I don't want metamorphosis being in that book, God. That's what happened to me. I was just walking along in life. Old Bob Alexander, dirty, rotten, sinner, deserved hell. And one day from outer space, my Savior came down and died on the cross. And he made me a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. So you see, I live in America. I love America. Fought for her once, I'd fight for her again. But I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. So I don't look at history from a Gentile. Sorry if you do. I look at it from a Christian standpoint. I look at it from God's standpoint. And when I look at it from God's standpoint, and I understand God's landmark and all the other Gentile nations, this is going to be tough for you. Take a big, deep breath. I see in World War I, God killed 42 million people just to get that land ready for his people to go back. Never even apologized to anybody from it. It gets better. In World War II, you see, here's what you got. Even though in World War I it got the land ready for the Jew, the Jew wasn't ready back for the land. They're in Europe, and they're having great times, and they're having great, great, great success. At the end of World War I, there was a depression in Germany that was unbelievable. It took about two million Reichmarks to buy a loaf of bread. Great depression. But the Jews, bless their hearts, they had enough gold that they were putting it in their teeth. They owned whole blocks of businesses. At about that time, an old Austrian corporal by the name of Adolf Schickelgruber, you know him as Adolf Hitler, He'd been gassed in World War I, wearing the Iron Cross in the battle of, uh, in one of the battles there, Battle of the Somme, I do believe. And uh, he'd been gassed with mustard gas. And he's now over there in Germany and he sees his country in disarray. And he sees his country up aside. And he sees the Jew prospering. And in his heart and in his mind, he says, You know what the problem with this country is? It's that Jew. And he says, If I ever get a chance to fix this, I'm going to fix it. And the devil made sure he did. He started the Nazi party. And the Nazi party was built on bringing Germany back to its former glory, which they had in the Weimar. And of course, uh, uh, he, has a, he leads a little revolt. He spends some, about a year in, in, in Landsberg prison there uh, because of, 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 he writes during that time his book Mein Kampf. And Mein Kampf was, means my struggle. And in that, he, he blamed every problem that Germany had on the Jew. Little did he know because he had missed a landmark that the problem Germany had was not because of the Jew. It was because they rejected the great preaching and teaching of Martin Luther. That's another sermon. But it's a good one. So he says, I'm going to eradicate the Jew. So he takes 8 million of them. To make a long story short, puts them in concentration camps. By the way, in Ezekiel chapter 22 and other places in the Bible, you'll actually see the prophecy on the concentration camp, but don't take my word for it. And at the end of World War II, the Jews are eradicated down to about 15 million people on planet Earth. And there's great sympathy for the Jews. And where World War I got the land ready for the Jew, World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And you know the rest of the story. May the 1st, 1948, they become a nation. And immediately, the next day, they're attacked by seven Arab nations called the Arab League, which, wow, by a strange coincidence, will be the same nations that Joshua was up against when he fought in the book of Joshua. 
the landmark. Now that's God's perspective on history. <laughs> Here it comes again. In World War II, there were 60 million casualties. God took 60 million in World War II and 42 million in World War I, a total of over 120 million Gentiles, just to get that land back to the Jew and get the Jew back in the land. You better get it. God's whole focus in the Old Testament was his landmark. It better be ours. And that's what history teaches us. They won't give you that at UMKC or your high school or wherever college you go to. That's history made simple by two basic landmarks. That when you see them and you understand them, it shows you not what man is doing, what God is doing. It puts this whole thing in perspective. You know God has three plans in the Bible? God has a plan for the universe. You find that in Isaiah chapter 9. God has a plan for the earth. You find that in Isaiah chapter 45. And God has a plan for your life. All three of them are separate, but they're all connected because the universe, the earth's in it, and you live on the earth. And the only way you figure out those three plans and find out where you're at in context to it is through a landmark. I had to put a fence in my yard up, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. I called a Billy Bob Fence Company. And Billy Bob came out and he said, uh, where do you want your fence? And I showed him and he says, okay, well, he says, uh, we'll uh, have a survey guy come out and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get your fence up. So I, a couple of days later, you know, this guy came out with a little thing on a tripod. I didn't even know this. He's up in my backyard in the corner of my lot, someplace up there in the woods, and he's scraping around. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for a little landmark plot. I didn't know this, but every place in the country, every backyard, you'll have a little plate there that, that shows you where your boundary marker is. It's a landmark. And the last thing he wanted to do, or I wanted him to do, was to put my fence on my neighbor's yard. So he got up there and did his little deal, and he stripped it off, and he showed me there's the landmark. And he made from that landmark is the place that he could survey everything in my yard to make sure it stayed in place and in bounds because he found the landmark. If you want to stay in bounds in history, if you want to stay in bounds with God in the Bible, find the landmark. Survey the Bible till you find it. It's the simplest thing on the planet, and then just stay with the landmarks. I'm showing to the Old Testament, wait till next week. I'll show you the New Testament one. God up to the first coming of Christ has built all history around the landmark, the nation of Israel. If you want to find God from 4004 B.C. up to the first coming of Christ, here you go. Everything else in high school, college, or any other institution of learning that won't put the Jew in his proper place is worthless. Fields of the fatherless. And you'll get completely off course and off base and you'll die in the desert, just like the crew of the lady be good. Dying of thirst, type of water, type of the Word of God, starving to death, type of the Word of God. You know, I know God make mentions to, uh, in Daniel to the eight great kingdoms that are going to come down through history, the Gentile kingdoms. I mean, you got Egypt, you got Babylon, you got Persia, you got Greece, you got Rome, you got England, you got Russia, you got the United States. But he only makes reference to them as they fit into the scheme of the coming Antichrist and how God is going to restore his people. He doesn't get into all the detail. There's no revolutionary war. There's no civil war. There's nothing that references anything with the Gentile nations because God's only concerned about the landmark, ancient landmark of Israel. And everything in history, every phase, every period, every section, no matter how you break it down, 
God has only cared about and focused on one thing, his wife, the nation of Israel, and bringing her back to him and getting it established for all of eternity and using her as the landmark that if you and I want to find out where God is, I mean, you realize that in the Old Testament time, you had the Old Testament scriptures. You realize there was never an Old Testament in Hittite, never one in Philistines language. There was never one in the Babylonian language, never one in any of the other nations out there languages. You know why? Because God fixed it. You realize that in the Old Testament, if you're an Amalekite or you're a Hittite or you're whoever you are or a Klingite or whatever you're on or Klingon, whatever you are, if you wanted to find God, if you wanted to get God's relationship and righteousness, you could, listen to me, you could not do it on your own. You couldn't walk out in your backyard and say, oh God, I love you. You know what God would say? Go to my nation of Israel. You had to become a proselyte Jew. That's why there's no other Old Testament Bibles in the other languages of the nation. It all went through one nation. The landmark. It's so clear when you begin to just look through the Bible. And in everything in history, every Gentile nation throughout history was simply a chess piece to move against the devil and God establishing His people for what's coming in eternity. I mean, they mean absolutely nothing to God. God cares, cares about one thing, getting His wife into the proper place, back to the proper city. And you see this in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, Ezekiel 14, 2, 1 Samuel 40, verse 15. I mean, He says in 1 Samuel 40, verse 15, that all the nations, all the nations are just a drop in the bucket to God. He has fought for her for 5,000 years and will not quit till they are together again for all of eternity. And I, you better, I want you to hold on to that thought because next week I'm going to kill you with it when we get into the church. I'm going to show you something that if it doesn't change your whole perspective of your relationship with Christ, you better look at your salvation. Proverbs 22, 28. Remove not the ancient landmark but which the fathers have set. The world looks at history one way. God sees it another way. And God will use the Gentile nations for His own purpose. He'll use them to help Israel, like He did America and England. He'll use them to prove Israel, like He did with Egypt. He'll use them to strengthen Israel, like America does, by supporting her. He'll use them to chastise Israel, like He did with the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He'll use, he'll use them to, 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 to get back to the land. And then when he's done with those nations, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, when he's done with them, after he uses them, he throws them on the ash heap of history. There ain't a one of them around today. Not a one of them. Israel still stands. The only ancient language that is still in existence today is Hebrew. The only ancient literature that's in existence and completion today is the Hebrew Bible. The only people on the face of this planet that have survived down through ancient history that is alive today and can be traced back today and know exactly where they're at, the landmark Israel. You either get on God's agenda and sting or you stay with the devil when it comes to history. The landmark has been set in place. And if you want to survey history, you've got to survey it from that survey point or you enter into the fields of the fatherless. You know, I was thinking about this. One of the greatest examples that proves what I'm saying to you today is true is looking from the Gentile perspective of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
You know, there's a lot written about that. Uh, they talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Everybody talks about what a great wonder they are. You have the great pyramid of Giza. You have the hanging gardens of Babylon. You have the statue of Zeus at Olympia. You have the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. You have the mausoleum of Hacarsius. You had the Colossus of Rhodes, that big guy that stood over the thing, and the ships had to go in, and he got to, with a big sword in his hand. And you, you had, the, you had the, the lighthouse, the great lighthouse at Alexandria. And everybody says, they are the great seven wonders of the world. Not one of those marvels of man has survived 6,000 years of history, other than the Great Pyramid. And that's an incredible mystery and probably tied into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. But it's sitting destitute in the desert over there. God cared nothing for the marvels of man. He looked at the seven great wonders of the world and he says, ain't no wonder to me. In fact, unbeknownst to most God's people, show you man's perspective on history versus God's perspective of history. God has his own seven wonders of the world found in the word of God. The real wonders. The wonders that last forever. The wonders that never go on the ash heap of history that are as fresh as next month's newspaper. The wonder of creation morning. Laid out in the book of Genesis, and specifically the book of Job, the day God spoke the universes into existence. That's a wonder. The wonder of the nation of Israel. How one ancient nation could survive the persecution of every nation on this planet. And they're all gone. She's still here. What a wonder that is. The wonder of the first coming of Christ. The incarnation of God into man. To be a man. To come down for you and for me. What a wonder that is. The regathering of the nation of Israel. How that in history, after everything that's happened, how Israel looked like they were knocked out of the thing a thousand times, went nowhere, had nothing. Yet God reaches down as he prophesied over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And regathers them. That's a wonder. How about the wonder of the second coming of Christ? How about the wonder of the millennial reign of Christ? And how about the wonder of eternity? You say, how come there's no church age in one of the seven wonders? Well, you ought to know that. Because the church age is a mystery. It's not listed with them. It's a mystery to you and to me. In, in, in reading and studying history... You must always keep in mind, and this is so important, always got to keep in mind that what you're reading about history is going to be somewhat based on the prejudice of the guy who's writing it. From what he's learned, his own personal perspective. You can't keep it out of the writing and don't think that you should. It's, it's valuable. But when I read somebody's account of history, I understand that along with what I'm getting, the facts, I'm also getting his slant from his perspective. So when you study history from the Bible, ah, here it comes. When you study history from the Word of God, the absolute standard, you're getting it right from the source of the one who is the absolute author of history. You're getting everything just the way it is. That's why you always want to stay with whatever you read in history. I probably read over 100, 200 history books, but I always ran them through the Word of God, not around the Word of God. I always recognize the one who created it all with a purpose and a plan. And all history will be staged and set up of that plan and will be fulfilled 
after Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And as I said, I don't know where you come from. If you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're going, you'll never know where you're at. The key is depth, not just tinkering with the Bible, not just understanding some things about the Bible, but being able to take the engine out, the head gaskets off, the pistons out, the crankcase, look at all the pieces, explain what it does, and then bolt it all back together. And yes, when you turn the key on, it starts. But knowing the Bible and its three plans, surveying all history through those landmarks, or like the fateful story of the crew of the Lady Be Good. That guy just missed one landmark. They were flying along up there, you know, thought they had an easy mission. Got blocked out. It gets counted as one of their 25. In fact, believe it or not, this is even makes it more of a sad, this was the last mission of all this crew. When they finished this mission, they were going home. They had to fly 25. This was their 25th mission. And I'm sure when they turned around those things and they, you know, uh, they, had the, they dropped their bombs in the Mediterranean so they couldn't drop them on a city someplace because they couldn't see and they started to fly back, I'm sure they all kind of just kind of rested and thought of going home. Thought of, boy, I made it. Thought of, wow, this was a cakewalk. The last mission, we get accounted for it. We didn't even have to do it. And they probably sat back and laid back and thought about home, laughed and joked and talked about what they were going to do when they got back to the States. Little did they know, the navigator, plotting their course through the heavy weather, missed one landmark. And that one landmark, as they were sitting there laughing and joking and talking, thinking they were flying back to their base, they were flying in the opposite direction, 600 miles, to their death in the desert. And so many people today, God's people, people in the world, sitting back and laughing and have a great time in life, thinking that your life is all set, thinking that you got it all made, with your job, your career, and everything you're doing in life. And little do you know, somewhere along the line, you missed the landmark. And while you think you're going through life in a great time, you're actually going in a direction that's going to lead you to an eternity without God. The landmarks. The landmarks. And you're going to die of thirst, and you're going to die of no food, and you're going to succumb to the harshness of this old world, all because we didn't pay attention to the landmark that God gave us to navigate ourselves through history. Next week, we're going to look at the second landmark, and I'm going to show you why Christianity is in the mess that it's in today. I'm going to show you everything that happened to the nation of Israel is exactly what's happened to us in both cases. We've missed the landmarks. Let's pray. Father.